0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? It's cold outside. Really, really cold. My uh, my diesel truck had to think about whether it was going to turn on this morning. That's how cold it was. Turned the key and it started. I was happy about that. So... Cool. Uh, good morning. Um, welcome. My name is Jason Shelton. For those of you who uh, may not know who I am, um, I get the privilege of opening up God's Word um, this morning. And um, if you're new to Windsor, we just want to extend a special um, welcome to you all, and, and to really to invite you along with us on the journey that we as a church body have been taking over the last several weeks. Um, normally, uh, typically we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible, but um, we pressed pause on that as we are looking towards Christmas um, three weeks ago, and we started an Advent series entitled uh, Thy Kingdom Come. And uh, considering the time of year, it's been um, fitting. It's been good. I know that in my own heart, um, it's been good to do some preparing. Um, Preparing to celebrate the coming, the advent of Jesus. And we are attempting to prepare our hearts um, by following in the footsteps, uh, in the way that God thought it best to prepare uh, humanity, to prepare all of creation. To, to, to hear, to see, to experience, and behold the only incarnate King, the Son of Man. God, uh, Son in the flesh, Emmanuel, right? God with us, Jesus Christ. And that preparation took time, a lot of time, right? As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, I mean, what we've covered uh, several thousand years of history at this point, Right? Many, 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 many generations, right? Matthew 1, 1 through 16 that we looked at last week, the genealogy of a king. There's a lot of people in God's story. Thousands of twists and turns along the way, literally millions of details, and all of which were purposed, were designed to perfectly set the stage for the serpent crusher king, King Jesus, to come. And as we've been moving towards Christmas, everybody good that next week is Christmas? That's not catching anybody by surprise? Okay, good. Your Google Calendar... Give you a little alert. I, I every year, uh, it seems like, um, like the 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 day of Christmas doesn't jump up on me. It doesn't jump up on Emily and, and I. Emily and my wife Emily is a is a is a is a gifted uh, planner, and so she like doesn't let me forget things like that. But but the reality is, um, we 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 have the blessing of having um, uh, both sets of family um, in the location of Northern Colorado, and so um, we we get busy. Uh, doing things like creating checklists and to-do lists of things we got to do. And um, uh, more, more often than not, we, we go to, uh, to Christmas Eve service. We may come home and read the nativity scene and then either like starting then or like the next day, it's kind of go, 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 go um, from this family event to this family event. And then we want to try to do something together as a family. And that was with one kid with a three-year-old and if you know, we're the awkward couple in the back with two uh, uh, little ones now, so we really have no idea how we're going to do this. But there's just a lot going on. And so um, the thing that jumps up on me is preparing room for what Christmas ought to be about in light of all the to-dos. Not that the to-dos are bad, but they're, they're just, it's just a busy Season. I know that's like a buzzword, like busy, and then you, you lay Christmas on top of that, and it's just like double busy, right? And, and so in light of that reality, I, I, I want to, to ask us to consider um, this question this morning. Seven days before Christmas, as you look out on the horizon of your week and the things that you need to do, feels, the things that you feel pressure to do, and ask the question, like, how's your heart How's your heart, how's your mind in preparing room for Jesus to come? That's been my heart in preparing this message that God in his kindness, in his grace would like would deeply prepare room um, for him in my own heart, in my own mind, and for me to be able to lead my family, my wife, and now three kids uh, into that. And by extension, that God would allow us as a church body um, to see the beauty of his biblical account, the biblical story that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And to see that biblical story as God intends for us to see it. And I believe that like God only wants us to see one primary thing. Thousands of other things, but one primary thing. Whether we're in the book of Genesis, observing um, God's first acts of creation, or whether we're uh, in the garden, seeing um, God's relationship with Adam and Eve, or when sin entered the world for the first time through one man affecting all men. Through the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, the salvation of a people group right? The promises given to Noah, promises given to Abraham. God's kindness in preserving his promises, even in light of his people's continued rebellion and sin, like all of these things and everything else that we have to skip over for the sake of time this morning. was given to demonstrate. Dan used that word last week, right? Demonstrate. And as I've been thinking through and praying through this message, that word stuck with me. All of these things were given and given to demonstrate that God's kingdom will only come through the face of the only incarnate son of man, Jesus Christ, who's given dominion and a kingdom whose kingdom is everlasting, whose dominion is everlasting. So all of these pages, all of these people, all of these events were to demonstrate, to clearly show the truth by giving proof. That's the definition of demonstrate. Okay, so, so God is uh, clearly showing the truth by giving proof to the fact that God's kingdom, this kingdom, right, that, that will only be accomplished, it'll only be inaugurated, it'll only be preserved not by human will. Not by human cunning. Not by human strength. Not by uh, human trial and error and, and human humanity just trying to figure it out. But by Jesus. In Jesus Christ alone as we are seeing as we have been walking through the Old Testament like we begin to see that in greater clarity as we're walking through the Old Testament. God's demonstrating. Because if, if the story's not about that, if it's not about demonstrating, then like the story just doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it. Okay? Either God is incapable of accomplishing the things that he promised that he was going to accomplish, either because he's not good, or he's betting on human ability to accomplish it, which really doesn't make God a faithful God, but a lucky God if it's not about demonstrating that the kingdom only comes by the means and the power of the only king of kings, then, then why have this part in the biblical story that we're going to look at this morning? I mean, it, it is a complete downer. 900 years of, of, of just It's just a sad story. I mean, we we left last week of like the height of Israel, the golden age of Israel, where they have arguably never seen such blessing. And now we're going to see that they don't stay there. Like, God, why did you do that? Like, God, why couldn't they just stay in your place in Israel under, under godly kings who would enforce your rule and he would shepherd your people into your blessing? Like, why not leave your people, leave them in the, the golden age of Israel? Like, why do they have to go off into exile? Think about that. I think the answer at a, at a basic level is because God wasn't finished demonstrating that he wasn't finished preparing us to see for us to behold for us to receive the king and his kingdom And if you were here with us last week, like I already shared, like we, Pastor Dan, um, got us up to David and his son Solomon, where uh, Israel is at its high point in history. The people of God have arguably never had it so good. Where um, God's temple was built, where God had his people in his place under his law, and they experienced his blessing. And if you're familiar with the the biblical account, the biblical story, you know that that doesn't last very long. Like it's not long after Solomon uh, finishes building this uh, amazing temple under the Lord that Solomon's sin and the sin of God's people gives way and God brings judgment on that sin. It's like so horrendous is the decline that God tears apart his partial kingdom, right? Separating this people group that had been united under uh, Saul, uh, David, and Solomon for 120 years. He, he pulls them apart. He separates it. There's civil war. And 10 of the 12 tribes that God led out of Exodus, out, out of Egypt, um, divide with 10 of them forming a new nation, the nation of Israel, weird, confusing, and two, forming the new nation of Judah, where the, the first uh, king of the nation of Israel, of the new ten tribes in the north, like his, his name's Jeroboam, and he, and he actually is fearful that his people are going to want to go and seek God and with the presence of God in the temple, and so guess what he does? He builds two alternate places for his people to worship. Was he put in there? He puts a golden calf in each one of them. And he says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Sound familiar? Aaron did that. When Moses was gone, uh, meeting with God on the mountain, Aaron did that. Like the complete destruction of the northern kingdom happens 200 years later. In 922, when the Assyrian nation comes in and destroys them, the southern kingdom doesn't fare much better, in all honesty. Yes, they had some faithful kings, but God's warning of judgment ultimately goes unheeded and they too are destroyed in 597 with the temple in Jerusalem fully destroyed, laid waste to in 586 with the Babylonian invasion. The people of God are expelled. They're kicked out of God's place, not experiencing his blessing because they've rejected his rule. See, God's warning, although persistent, and loud, at times, went unheeded. And in so doing, they rejected his rule over them. And as promised in the beginning with Abraham, God brought judgment on them because of that sin. You see, God is not yet done demonstrating. Demonstrating that the serpent crusher promised in Genesis chapter 3 has not yet come. And because he has not yet come, the cycle of sin and the effects of sin have great power. Because there is no appeasement, there's no propitiation, no true kingdom established because the king has not yet come. They're all demonstrations pointing to future realities future fulfillments of future realities that would come, that would advent when God in the flesh, fully man and fully God, the son of man would leave his throne and he'd put on humble flesh and he'd advent with us. Yes, it was good that God in in his kindness provided a covering and and a sacrifice for Adam and Eve the first time they sinned in the garden. That was a good thing. But that sacrifice, that covering was just a shadow of the future reality that Christ was going to be the greater and the better sacrifice that God would give, that he would clothe us in, in his son Jesus. It was good that the the nation of Israel got to experience rescue from their slave masters in Egypt and exodus away from that place. That was good. But that rescue, that exodus is just a shadow pointing to the future reality that Christ will purchase and lead the way for the greater and better exodus of his people. It was was good that the Israelites got to have God's presence amongst them in the temple and in the tabernacle. That was good. But those structures were just a shadow pointing to the future reality that Christ would be the greater and better structure for which God would come to dwell with humanity. John 1:14, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling or in Hebrew tabernacled among us. Yes, it was good that Israel had good kings like David and Solomon, but they pointed to the future reality that Christ is the far greater, the far better king. You see, God is not done demonstrating, He's not done preparing for His king and His kingdom to come. And that kingdom was never meant to come without the king coming. Okay? The, the kingdom was never meant to come without the king coming. And so because of sin and because God is not done demonstrating, God begins to dismantle his partial kingdom. The partial realities of the kingdom. The kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon. He begins to dismantle that in order that he might prepare room for the fulfillment of the kingdom to come through the king that would come see that see god is he's he's clearing the table i hated doing that as a young boy it's messy business didn't like it but but that is what god is doing here he's he's clearing the table so that he might make room see he's removing the shadows so that we might not see the shadows as the fulfillment, fulfillment, so that we might not look at the shadows and want the shadows. He's removing them so that we might see with greater clarity the things to which the shadows pointed to. God doesn't want to leave us wanting the shadows and the blessings. They were good, yes, but they're not the fulfillment of those things not the full fulfillment of those things. And so God begins to dismantle the partial realities of this kingdom so that we might not be happy with those realities. That we might not be content with those realities. God is making room. He's clearing the table, not destroying, not changing his promises. But showing us that they aren't the true fulfillment of Of those things. That these promises would only find their complete yes. In the one to come. Jesus Christ. See God is truly preparing himself room. And so the prophets could arguably be seen as the bridge. That God uses to make room to clear the table of the one kingdom and so make room for the kingdom to come. And he is making room because this partial kingdom is not the end. There is something better. It's not the true kingdom because the true king has not yet come. And so God makes room for him to come by clearing the table by dismantling the partial realities of this golden age of Israel. And God uses the books in the Old Testament that are referred to as the prophets as the bridge or the means to accomplish this, to prepare him room for his coming, for this king's advent. And this this bridge has two supporting structures to it that God uses to to show us that the reality that he's he's at work clearing the table because the anticipated king has not yet come. And and those two supporting structures, I don't know if you'd call them like trusses or handrails. Is there any bridge engineers in the room that could help me with that? Cool, we'll call them trusses, cool. Um, So they're trusses, okay, and, and on one side is the idea of judgment, Okay? And on the other side of the bridge is the idea of future hope. So there's judgment and there's future hope. Okay? And, and those two elements are not new to the covenant that God has with his people. Right? We've seen this at the very beginning after sin entered into the world. Right, Where God pronounces judgment on humanity because of their sin. He also gives a promise of future hope that one day sin will be dealt with once and for all. It's found in the story of Noah, where God brings forth judgment onto earth, but preserves a family in the ark, a picture of future hope. Even in light of judgment, it's seen with Abraham, where God promises blessing and future hope in the midst of judgment for disobedience. And so this this bridge is, is really no different, right? The themes of judgment and hope are really no different. God continues to demonstrate that the kingdom has not yet come because the message of judgment and future hope are both explicitly seen through these 17 books that are called the prophets in the Old Testament. Where God's people experienced God's judgment because of their disobedience, where they're expelled from God's place because they're not living under his rule. But even in the thick of judgment, where God's people are scattered, where they are ruled over and oppressed by foreign powers, God's faithfulness remains. The the message of future hope is still proclaimed. See, God uses 17 books of the Old Testament to continue to call his people to repentance and belief in him alone for rescue, reconciliation, and blessing. And to communicate to the Israelite people that these things that have happened to them, this exile, this judgment, is not something that is out of God's control. He is still very much on his throne ruling over the nations like Assyria or the Babylonians and even the Persians and yes, every other thing in God's creation. Three of these books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are considered the major prophets with the other 14 considered minor prophets. Not because of their their importance but because of their size relative to the other three. Books like Hosea and Amos were written to the northern kingdom prior to the exile. If you're familiar with like the book of Hosea, if you're familiar with that story, Hosea is a a guy and God continually calls him to be faithful to an unfaithful wife, an unfaithful bride. A, A powerful picture to the reality that God one day will still be faithful to an unfaithful bride and call him into his presence on a wedding day. Books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Daniel, they're all written to the southern kingdom prior to and during their exiles, and all of which continue to communicate God's holiness and God's patience over his people's sin. And many of those books begin to demonstrate, begin to prophesy how God is going to accomplish all that God has promised to do so long ago. That one day a son of man will come with an everlasting domain whose kingdom is everlasting where one day there will be a king who will will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. Isaiah chapter nine, where one day the serpent's head will be truly crushed and the serpent crusher king will lead us back into God's place under God's rule and blessing forever. How will this be? I mean, considering the current condition of God's people who continue to be overtaken by sin, who are at this point in the biblical story, in the biblical account, aren't really even a coherent people. Like, they're not in God's place. Living under his rule, experiencing his blessing. Like how is God going to stay faithful to all that he has promised? He has promised them great blessing, great future hope. But he's also bound by his holiness to judge them for their sins. So how can, he, how can they stay in his place under his rule and blessing in their continued sinful state? Do you see God demonstrating? Do you see God preparing for the answer, making room for the answer, the only answer? See, only six decades after the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into exile from the Babylonians, the Babylonian empire is defeated by Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus allows the people of Israel to go back, if they desire, to their homeland. And some people make the journey. Books like Isaiah and Nehemiah paint the picture of people returning. And they be, get busy rebuilding the temple and the walls in Jerusalem. And in some ways, there's celebration. But like most things, those who are older and wiser, they know this. this just isn't it. Like this can't possibly be the fulfillment of the things that were prophesied about. Promises made while in exile like the book of Ezekiel who prophesied that there'd be a more magnificent temple than, than Solomon's where God's presence fully dwelled among men with the river of life flowing from it. They knew that that couldn't possibly be it. And so Ezra Chapter 3 says that they wept. This is the time when the post-exilic prophets began to speak to God's people. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. With a message similar to that of their uh, other prophetic counterparts, like the spiritual condition of, of God's people is still sick. The kingdom has not yet come. Like evidences of that are profound for the next several hundred years. As God's people continue in their sinful pattern. And it's no overstatement whatsoever to say that the Old uh, Testament ends with a very real need for the coming king and his kingdom. The the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament actually ends with 2 Chronicles. And if you're familiar with the book of 2 Chronicles, you know that 2 Chronicles ends with the uh, Israelite nation still in exile. And as one theologian puts it, that book literally ends begging for a savior. Begging for a new exodus, a new covenant, a new nation, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new king, and yes, even a new creation. Do we see God demonstrating that there must be a permanent way for sin to be crushed and the guilty pardoned. Where the guilty are no longer enemies of God, but called God's people where they're no longer distant from him, but in his place, where they no longer are living in rejection to his rule, but willingly subjecting themselves to his rule and therefore experiencing his blessing. And God's word, this progressive revelation has picked up a lot of steam over time about who this king is and what he's come to do. If you remember, it started with just a small whisper back in Genesis chapter 3. But as we've seen, as we move on out of the garden, it's growing both in volume and in clarity. What once was a future hope what has now become a long-anticipated king and with his coming, his eternal kingdom. A king who will be despised and rejected who will obediently walk towards the cross where the whole weight of sin and the consequences of sin will be laid upon his shoulders. Your sin and mine. Where he will be committed to the grave, where he will deal the final triumphant blow upon the head of the serpent, crushing him. Where he rose three days later proclaiming that his payment was sufficient. That there is appeasement, where there can be propitiation for sin for all those that would trust, for all those that would repent and believe in Christ's death, in this King's death and life, death, and resurrection, that we can partake in God's kingdom, be God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing forever, because our King came. Our hope, no longer future but present hope. I'd like to consider the question I asked earlier. How's your heart and your mind in preparing room for that hope this season? I'd like to close this morning thinking about that question and thinking about a couple realities in light of that question. I remember celebrating Christmas in the past, some of those experiences, obviously, I was un, I was in the household of my parents, and then some of that spilled over when I was single, and even some of that, to be honest, has spilled over um, to to being married with Emily. And um, the reality was is that we would oftentimes going up to Christmas, we would we would go to um, we would go to Christmas Eve service together as a family, right? We would do that. And we'd come home and we'd read through the nativity scene, usually. Joseph and Mary, they travel a long way, they found no place to stay, they end up in this, uh, this barn, which later on in life I found out was actually a cave, which was really depressing for a kid who loves barns, if you think about it, you know, you get over things like that as a kid, I guess, um, move on, you know, and they, they, they end up in this cave, and, they, and, and, and crazily enough, like, they, they have a kid, we've had three, there's no way we could have done that in a cave, it's kind of amazing if you think about it. Um, this kid's placed into a major, which is another name for the thing that animals eat out of, right? And then there's these these shepherds nearby that these kids sting about this morning that got that got freaked out by these angels, and the praise that these angels are articulating for their coming king. So they probably leave their sheep and they hustle over to find this kid and Like, most of the time, like, in in all honesty, like, that story, and and therefore celebrating the event of that story, like, seemed impersonal to me. And, And kind of distant, to be honest. Like, it's a good story, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, birth through a virgin, angelic host, a bunch of wise men, but still impersonal. It was almost like, as a Christian, I should be celebrating um, Christ's birth on Christmas Day because that's what you do. There's a lot of duty in that. It's like similar to celebrating um, like a, a cousin that's like a second cousin that's like once or twice removed. I don't even know what that last part means, but let's just say they're distant, right? Somebody come up afterwards and tell me what that means. Um, A second cousin that you don't really know, but like you go and celebrate it because you're family and that's what you do. Therefore, like good Christians celebrate Jesus' birth because as a Christian, that's what we do. And I think for most of us, like we don't want Christmas to be that way. Like I know in our home, I know for Emily and, for, and, and I, like we want to use this event on our calendar to be in awe of God, and the, the God that we follow in a very unique and special way. And, and to let that worship and awe spill over to praise to Him. Like that's our heart's desire. And I think... That, that's why that this, this Advent series has made me be more thankful in particular because it has reminded me that this impersonal birth that happened 2,000 years ago is not impersonal at all. It is very personal. Because that king came for me. He came for my wife. And for all of you who call yourselves believers and followers of Jesus, he came for you. That king came to call you and I into his kingdom where your greatest need, the need to be forgiven, began to be remedied in the face of a little baby. Where because of his coming, if you believe in his name, you no longer stare into the face of judgment. Instead, you're ushered into the eternal kingdom of hope whose dominion is everlasting, whose kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Our present hope. This sermon's a little unique in that the, the application or the, or the call to action isn't like a list of things to do, right? Um, it's not a list of five ways to get back your joy in Christmas. Um, It's definitely not like 10 different ways to bring civility to the dinner table when you have the in-laws that probably voted differently than you, right? Um, My prayer for us as a body, my prayer for my own home is that in this season with lots of different pressures and things to do, who's a, who's a checklist person in the audience? Okay, there's some of you out there. Okay? Emily and I are like recovering checklisters. Okay? Like there's lists of things. They're, they're, they're all over the place. Sometimes I think we make lists just to make lists. Sometimes it's not about doing things. It's just about like the mental organization of getting them on a piece of paper. You feel better about that, right? Um, some of you don't relate. That's okay. Okay. Um, and as we talked about this, this season, like there's just a lot of things to do. Like the Christmas lists and the preparation. And, and those, things are, those things are not wrong. Those things are good. But like we can get so overwhelmed with the to-dos. And, and my, my prayer is that we would first and foremost be captivated, not in the to-dos of this season, but what our King has already done for you. That we would, we would find great rest in the doneness of Jesus. Specifically what he has done on your behalf in coming into this world. And allowing that to fuel worship. Allowing that to fuel anticipation. Allowing that to, to fuel celebration for the king. And his coming. Like my prayer is that we would, that we would be a church, that we, would be, that we would be a people who sees the gospel in its entirety when we see the nativity. Like let us, let us be a people that cultivates the need for the coming king, the reason for the coming king, not just that he come, not just that he came, but why he came. Because that need is personal to each one of us. Let us celebrate that together. The advent of our great king who came to accomplish all that he promised that he would accomplish. All through the face of his son, Jesus. The only serpent crusher king. Our present hope. Amen? Amen. As the worship team comes up, let's just close in prayer, meditating on that, thinking through that. Lord Jesus, it is my heart's desire that we would prepare you room in our minds and our hearts this season, Lord. Not that the other things that we do uh, that celebrate that are, are wrong, Lord Jesus. I just know in my own heart that I can just get so sidetracked with the other things. Lord Jesus, and so I want in my own home, in my own heart, Lord Jesus, to, to see the, the biblical narrative, to see the biblical account as, as a great beggar begging for a Savior, Lord Jesus, that articulates our need, Lord Jesus. I pray that you help us to, to grab a hold of that reality, grab a hold of the gospel, and allow the Advent season, the, the celebration of Jesus' birth. For us to be able to celebrate the gospel together. That we, would, that we would see you as the only eternal hope. The only present hope and the future hope that we have. When you come again, Lord Jesus, and you usher us into your eternal kingdom. In all its fullness, and all of its glory, into your presence, Lord Jesus. Maybe we be people that anticipate that. That want to celebrate that and do it faithfully to the people that we have influence with until you return one day and take us home. We love you. We ask this all only in the Son of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man.